This is The Premise, and I'm your host, Jennifer. Chad Thompson. Da- no, Chad I- Thompson's no, host. I'm the host. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson, the host. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Premise. Chad and I are going to chat today with Derek Lewis, who is a very interesting and even mysterious person. Well, not really, but he is a ghostwriter, which people find a little mysterious. They're not really sure how that works. It's so, got ghost right in the title. Right, exactly. There's got to be mystery involved, and we're going to find out. Derek is a business book ghostwriter and coach. That's his official title. He is also a published author himself, and he's a husband and a father living in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Derek, welcome to The Premise. I feel like I should have some eerie intro music, you know? I know, we should work on that. (laughs) Chad has a theremin, maybe we can get him to create some music for you. (laughs) Yeah, that'll that'll drive our three listeners away. (laughs) Now, 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 come on now. First of all, we have more than three listeners. And two, I like the sound of your theremin. I think it's kind of a, uh, I don't know, it's kind of, well, it's certainly mysterious. Well, there's a reason it has a headphone jack on it. Oh, yeah, that's true. Have you, you know what we're talking about, right? When we talk about a theremin, that sort of, yeah, yeah, the, um, the old instrument, well, I say old instrument, but uh, like from the, especially in the 80s, didn't they love to use it? Even earlier. I don't know. What do you... You well, tell us, Chad. it was created in the 1920s by Leon Theremin. It was the first electronic. I-, I mean, there's a whole history behind it that I probably shouldn't go into on this podcast. But I'm kind really of interested. About- like, we want to know about the theremin, don't we? Um, Chad, no, I, no, I can't. Chad doesn't. Chad doesn't <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's just us. an instrument that I mean, you hear it in like the theme song to Star Trek, right? Uh, similar device created that kind of sound. Yeah. The Beach Boys. Or the Beach Boys, I mean that technically that was a different that wasn't a theremin, but it used the same kind of sort of electronics to make the it was a bit more precise than a theremin. Okay. Like a theremin in the hands of someone like me is a disaster because I don't have the precision (laughs) to play. I I play like in between notes Hmm. and I should be playing the notes. Mm. So I yeah, I'm not very good. It's fascinating to watch him play it because he stands in front of this. Well, it looks like a little spaceship with a huge antenna on it. And he just moves his hand back and forth. And that like somehow makes these noises. It's really cool. Yeah, volumes in one hand, pitches in the other, and you don't actually touch the instrument. So just wave your hands in space. You just, you just wave, <laughs> wave your hands like you just don't care. So what do you think, Derek? Is this, are we onto something? Is this your new theme music? You know, especially since it's Star Trek, uh, you know, feel uh, um, evoking. Yes, yes, yes. All right, all right. Tricky way back. (laughs) So we've invited you here today because you know, in the publishing industry, I think the ghostwriter, you know, is one of those jobs that people don't talk about a lot, and a lot of people will come to me and say, you know. I need someone to write my book. And I say, you need a ghostwriter. And they're like, how do you find a ghostwriter? What is a ghostwriter? So I want to dig in deep because Derek, I'll, I'll, I'll say honestly, you are my favorite ghostwriter. And I do, I do know more than one because you're just so open and honest about the process. And I think you have so much fun with it. And I've read several of your books, by the way. So, um, for the benefit of our clients, talk to us about what it means to be a ghostwriter. So for me, a professional ghostwriter is someone who the the analogy I always use is a, a midwife. Mm. The the author is the the parent of the the child, the entity um, that wants to come into the world. The role of the midwife is to help that process um, that's going to happen one way or another, mm. uh, to help it uh, happen as, as smoothly, as joyfully, as delightfully, as safely, um, and as risk-free as possible. So that's what a, a real ghostwriter, professional ghostwriter, in my humble opinion, that's what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to um, 
one of the big misconceptions about ghostwriters is that the ghostwriter writes the book and the author just takes the credit. Totally. Yeah, yeah exactly. Ghostwriting, that's fraud. That's fraud. <laughs> there you go. Well, Ghostwriting is whenever... So if, you, if you're a writer, you're both the thinker of the thoughts and the writer mm -hmm. of the thoughts. Mm -hmm. Whenever you enter into a collaboration with a ghostwriter, the author is still the thinker of the thoughts. The ghostwriter is the writer of the thoughts. Mm. So you're taking concepts and, you know, I mean, and you specifically ghostwrite business books, which we'll get into more about that in a moment. But basically, you work with experts who know a lot about a topic and help them convey their message in a way that's interesting and well-written, I would imagine, <laughs> right? We like to think so, yes. We like to think so. <laughs> well, and I, what fascinates me about a really good ghostwriter is that you capture the voice of that author. It, it's your job to sort of get inside their head and put words on the page that sound like something they would say. I had uh, an author out of Berlin. Uh, she's a consultant. Um, her husband was also a consultant, also a partner in, in her company. And um, whenever we started working together, she wouldn't let her husband read anything that was that was going on between the the two of us, in part, I think, because she wisely didn't want to invite any kind of criticism or suggestions while the ideas were still germinating, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the other part is, I think she just wanted to piss him off. <laughs> <clears throat> well, <laughs> did it work? <laughs> whenever I... Whenever we finished the, um, I won't say finished the, the manuscript, but whenever we had a, a manuscript, um, she printed out the entire thing, gave it to her husband. Uh, he sat down in the living room and she went off to her office and she walked back through, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes later to go to the kitchen, get herself some, some water or something. And he looked up from the couch and this, this is her husband, right? He said, oh, my God, this sounds just like you. Wow. That's, that's probably the highest compliment I have ever received in my professional life. Hmm. To be able to embody an author's voice to the point that her husband and business partner uh, can read something and and see his wife, his you know, his business partner, hmm. his life slash business partner uh, can see her saying it. That's to me that that's when I knew I had done my job. High praise indeed. You know, with that, it makes me wonder: Would you be able to write more than one book at a time if you're, you know? putting yourselves in their head and writing in their voice, can you do that for more than one author at a time? The way that my strange mind is wired, Jennifer, yes. <laughs> it takes a strange mind indeed. Well, I don't think very many people would be able to do that. That's a real talent, I think. You can call it strange. I call it craft. It wasn't until I was a few years into ghostwriting that I kind of connected two dots. So one thing that I've always been, and this is just a, this is not from effort or uh, from putting in time. I, I genuinely am blessed with the the ability to. I don't know what to call it. For example, whenever I am learning uh, another language, whenever I'm in a, another country, mm. um, even what few words I know, I'm able to pick up on the accent. One of the things, always, whenever I've spoken Thai or Portuguese or, or Spanish, I uh, always am complimented on my accent, how mm. much I sound like uh, a native. Even if I only know a few words, I say them like... A native, um, and again, that's nothing on no effort on on my part. That's just one of my little natural um, talents, I guess. 
And so I realized that I've brought that into, into ghostwriting. Mm. I hear that with that same ear that I can pick up um, a native accent, I can hear how an author would, would think, how they voice, how they bring words together. I can read something that I've ghosted and say, no, she wouldn't. She wouldn't say it like that. Hmm. She just wouldn't. I right. can't tell you why she wouldn't, but I know she wouldn't. The interesting thing to me is that it's kind of like you're hiding your accent now. Because hmm. I imagine, I, I, I don't know. When Jennifer said where you were from, I just imagined a really thick Baton Louisiana, Rouge, Baton Louisiana. Rouge, Louisiana accent. And you know what? I said, well, I hear it. It comes out occasionally. Because Derek and I work, have worked like together there for years. Under the surface. Every once in a while I hear it. Now, oh, there it is. Yeah. Tell us more. You know, about I, I expected like a, uh, like a Chef Justin Wilson. Like, <laughs> <laughs> A little more wine in the, in the bird there. <laughs> oh, that tastes good. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to, uh, to disappoint you. Yeah, there is only one <laughs> Justin Wilson. Part of the problem with uh, with the expectation, Chad, is that even though I live in Baton Rouge, I'm actually from three hours uh, three hours west. I'm, so I'm from Central Louisiana, hmm. and Central Louisiana is culturally uh, distinct from uh, South Louisiana. So Interstate Ten, they they call it uh, the border. Everything north of I ten <laughs> is really uh, so. Where I'm from is really Eastern Texas. I was going to say, it's like Texas. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The north part of Louisiana is basically southern Arkansas. And then um, northeast is basically western Mississippi. So it's only once you get down to Appaloosas and and Lafayette, you really start getting the um, the Cajun, uh, Cajun heritage, Cajun culture, Cajun dialect. And then that even is distinct from the New Orleans area, which is Creole. Mm. So Cajun French and Creole French are two different dialects. Right. Do you find yourself picking up those accents when you hang out with people in those areas? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. I've even started taking on some of the uh, some one of the things that my um, my one of my fathers in law is from around here, and. Uh, Wait a minute. Do you have more than one wife? Why do you have two father-in-laws? It's a, I have one. Wife. <laughs> I'm like, what's one. happening here? <laughs> I've only had one wife. She has her, two dads. Her parent situation is um, complicated. Got it. So anyway, <laughs> this, this man in particular is my ex-former stepfather-in-law. Hmm. And one of the first things that he said, uh, or one of the first things I remember was uh, whenever we, we came down here, uh, I had finished my, my plate, and he said, uh, he said they got some more there in the kitchen. I said, who? I didn't, you know, not out loud, but to myself, I said, who is they? They've got some more. Because he's the one who prepared the food. <laughs> got it, <laughs> got it. Saying, They've got some more in the kitchen. <laughs> and I've, I've started doing the same thing myself. Now you say it. Yeah, it nice. is. It is. You know. Um, and then the other part of your your. <laughs> Missed expectation, Chad, is that whenever I was growing up, I uh, i guess I was a precocious child, as they say in the novels, and <laughs> I was embarrassed of the area that I grew up in. I was embarrassed that we were, we were rednecks. We were country, um, or the whole area was country, country hicks, mm-hmm. as, uh, as they'd say. And so I tried... Uh, explicitly mm-hmm. to pronounce things correctly and to try to shake off the um, the accent. And the older I've gotten, the more I realized how unnecessary that is and how wrong it is. We don't, yeah. like those of us who are de- decent people, we don't make fun of of someone from Tanzania who comes here and, and, uh, and speaks uh, English different than we do. We don't make fun of Brits who come here and they speak English differently the way that, that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no, there's no reason to hide what uh, my heritage. So, I can totally relate to that. Yeah. My, my daddy is from Oklahoma. <laughs> Your daddy? 
my daddy and I grew up, you know, speaking with, you know, he had a, a Southern draw for sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's how I spoke. And when I moved to San Diego when I was 18, I explicitly worked on removing the y'alls mm-hmm. and, you know, all of that. And I did the exact same thing, Derek, when I got older in my 40s, I was like, you know, I kind of miss that. Like, that's comfortable. You know, it feels good. And what is it about us that we like, I wanted to be successful. I wanted to get away from that place. And then, you know, spend a lifetime working my way back to it. But yeah, I can totally relate. See, now I, on the other hand, came from Iowa <laughs> and they, they pride themselves on a very neutral accent. Right. But there are a couple things that I will never revert to. Okay. And it is Warsh and, and Missouri. <laughs> Missouri. Yeah. I've heard both of those. I Now, where does Warsh come from? Like Washington, <laughs> Warsh your clothes. Like, I'm, I literally don't understand that uh, Warsh. Does any, do you have any answers, Derek? Where does that come from? I don't know the, uh, <laughs> I don't know why, but I do know that it's, it's very, um, <clears throat> Especially two generations ago down down here, my uh, I guess you'd call her my adopted grandmother. Uh, she'll wash something on the washboard. Yeah, yeah, totally. We had a washboard, although we called it a washboard. Well, back to you and business <laughs> books. This has been fascinating. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I I want to go back to your childhood actually, because I know that when you were a kid while you know the rest of the kids were reading the twilight or the harry potter of the day you were reading business books um in fact i understand one of your favorite and most beloved books is quest for the best a business book Uh, tell us more about this weird desire to know more about business as a teenager yeah, this is uh, this is turning into a therapy session. It me. is. Yeah, we do that here. You're gonna have to send me your bill. <laughs> I have, uh, even as a kid, whenever my cousins and I we would play, um, we had Hot Wheels, but we also had they call them uh, micro machines or micro minis. Oh, that are like tiny Hot Wheels. Uh, we would play, and I would always be the the business owner, the the bookshop owner. The, you were the guy in charge, yeah. yeah. Well, my <laughs> cousin would always be the mayor, so he could be uh, in charge overall. But I was always the uh, the mm. business person who got things got things done. <laughs> but I had no idea. I loved books, but I had no idea that there was a genre such as business books until I went to visit a missionary in Brazil. And he, I don't know why we were even talking about the book, but he lent me his tattered copy, actually gave it to me, um, 1979 edition of Stanley Marcus's Quest for the Best. Now, Stanley Marcus is from the Neiman Marcus family. So his father uh, was uh, partners with, um, with Mr. Neiman. And that's how they they founded the store. So his so this is the second generation now of the Neiman Marcus um, managers and, and family. And I I'd always loved business. I've all I'd always loved books. And now all of a sudden this whole new world was opened up to me of of an overlap of two of the things that I'd I'd loved. Mm. And so I immediately started reading um kinds of, of business books because you know they there's a whole school of thought about our entrepreneurs born or made and all of that crazy stuff I don't know hmm. I do know that I've always been fascinated by people who had a vision and a determination and took a risk to create an economic entity that forever changed their lives and the lives of those around them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, again, it's just one of the weird ways that I'm, I'm wired. Well, here's, here's something that's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people and myself included think of business books as boring, right? Mm-hmm. But really it's, it's another type of storytelling. And for you, what I'm hearing, it's the story of how that person changed the world, 
was passionate about something, brought that, you know, made the world a better place through their passion. I mean, that's really what entrepreneurship is at its heart, I think. And, you know, you were tapped into that. You wanted to change the world, I think. My, uh, my master's um, was actually in, in Latin American economic development. I wanted, oh, yeah. I want to talk about this. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to, <laughs> to save the world. I, I, well, the facts tell us that the better that a, uh, a region, an area, population, a nation, the better that they do economically, the higher a quality of, of life for the people in those in those countries. I took my and look, uh, I'm from uh, a poor part of a poor state, um, so I did not grow up privileged by the um, by today's meaning. But my dad had a good factory job, and so for our area. Um, you know, we we did we did decently well. Looking back, I, I I say that I I was on the bottom rung of middle class. We <laughs> right. Um, but it wasn't until uh, my my dad's company they tapped him to do a project in Thailand, and uh, my mom and I went and lived over there for just just a short little while, and I saw what true poverty was. Yeah, and I realized how rich I was, just mm-hmm. how incredibly rich I was mm-hmm. compared to the reality, not only of what I saw before me, but the reality of that same situation repeated on a scale of billions throughout the world. And I wanted to do something about that. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, I went into economic development because I wanted to see the billions of people in the world who don't even have access to running water mm-hmm. um, and live in a constant state of, of civil war. I want to see their quality of life increased. Sure. And the research shows that one of the best ways to do that is to increase the um, per capita income, per capita wealth. And those are two different things, but you, you get the, you get the idea. In fact, and this this particular number, Jennifer, is probably from 18 years ago. So I, I'm sure that it's changed. But at that time, 18 years ago, uh, so that in 2002, the research showed that if a country's per capita income rose uh, above, I think it was 2,100 U.S. dollars at that time, that the chances of that country going into civil war fell significantly. Mm, wow. So whenever people get to per capita, whenever they get to a certain income level, um, the I don't know if you want to call it the need for civil war, but there's a definite correlation between reaching that kind of, of sustenance level and uh, people actually doing the horrible things that we read about in uh, in civil wars. Well, and of course that makes sense. So what you're saying is that we're not going to have a civil war here in America. Soon. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> we're too fat and happy. Exactly. exactly. I said we like our movies <laughs> and we like our Starbucks. No, there's no way we're going to go into a civil war. <laughs> well, I need I mean, a new bass boat. Yeah, right. You. You wrote your graduate thesis on microfinance based on your field research with the Dominican loan sharks. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah, right? (laughs) That's why I want to talk about it. So, yeah, tell us more. Dominican loan sharks. Yeah, prestamistas. Do you speak Uh, Spanish, fluent Spanish? Yes. Presumably, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, How many languages do you speak? Well, fluently, just um, you just speak German, I, don't you? No, no German. Okay. Um, I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> whenever I was in Brazil, um, I've been four times. I picked up uh, quite a bit of Portuguese, but uh, most of it's gone. And by the time we finished our time in Thailand, I was uh, conversational 
in time. But again, that's been 20 something, 25 years ago. All right. All right. So, so the Dominican loan sharks, let's, let's, let's hear more about this. Yeah. So I, I got in, in, in my graduate work, um, I got really interested in uh, micro enterprises and, and microfinance because what we've been doing in, in, in Western culture and developed economies to try to help our less developed brothers and, and sisters in the world is we've been doing top-down finance. We've been giving millions or billions of dollars in loans to the governments, and it's all been based on the premise of trickle-down economics. If we put enough money at the top, um, that will eventually magically trickle down to the bottom and uh, a rising tide floats all boats, which we've been doing that for 60 years and it hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. What has worked are finding people who already have, um, I don't want to say the, the ambition as if to say that the ones who don't follow in their lead don't have ambition, but the ones who are, are taking action um, uh, to try to change their own situations. Um, and so what we found with, I say we, the literature, the researchers. Yeah, who's they? Just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Go they, on. <laughs> that giving uh, some, some of these micro-entrepreneurs um, access to um some some capital and that capital jennifer it could be and i'm sorry chad i I act like you're not in the conversation obviously you are but i've never seen you i don't have any evidence that you exist so i'm I'm pretending like you're a figment of jennifer's imagination that's right yeah my perfect husband everyone knows no one's ever met him Yeah, I, uh, I had some friends that had girlfriends and boyfriends like that. They were in another city. That literally didn't exist yeah. when you were in high school? Yeah. I think Chad did, too. I think you told me about that. Guys yeah. would say they had friends and friends and girlfriends, girlfriends, girlfriends in, other... in Canada. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like Canadian girlfriends. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah. I, wanted to, I wanted to understand how and why micro- entrepreneurs used microfinance. Um, my, my, my graduate uh, advisor uh, knew somebody in the Dominican government, and he asked the question, he said, why don't uh, these uh, micro-entrepreneurs, no, why don't, uh, what was the question? Something about why don't they have loans under you know, a thousand dollars. Why did they only do loans for three thousand dollars or five thousand dollars? Mm. And I said, "Well, that's that's really cool. I'd love to know." So I got down to the Dominican Republic and uh, went into the the government, one of the government uh, funded agencies. No, it wasn't his private one. Doesn't matter. And they said, "Oh, well, it's because we can't we can't efficiently." administer loans that small, a thousand Dominican pesos. So, um, you know, loans start at 5,000 Dominican pesos. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. there's my whole thesis at the window, <laughs> which, which I would have called first. <laughs> had to go there to find that out. Right. Yeah. Um, fortunately, I had uh, some friends who had introduced me to uh, a couple of micro-entrepreneurs in the, in the little um, barrio that I was uh, staying in. And she, uh, we were talking one day, and she said, I've got, my, um, I've got my prestamista coming. And I wasn't familiar with that word, so I had to, I had to look it up in my little dictionary. And uh, the formal uh, translation is a moneylender. Colloquially, it is a loan shark. Hmm. Cool. And of course, as a loan, the only thing I ever knew <laughs> were in the in the movies where you know the big Italian guy goes around, yeah, right, right, uh, breaking people's kneecap. <laughs> Was and, it uh, not like that? I hope. Well, I had to stay to find out. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I parked myself in the corner, and I was, you know, a little <laughs> apprehensive. 
And uh, but she didn't act like it was it was anything. So about a half hour later, a woman steps in to the colmado. Um, she and and my friends they they hug, they catch up about their kids and what's going on in in the neighborhood. Sandra hands her uh, I don't know a couple of hundred pesos, and um, she turns around and walks out. And I said, oh, my God, i got to talk to this woman. I've got to figure out what is going on because this has just blown my mind. Mm. And that led to me interviewing five different uh, five different loan sharks. Um, I mean, one of them even had an office. He, he had two businesses. He was a loan shark. And at the same time, he was also uh, a certified accountant. So these people are are not only in the informal economy, but they also work in the formal economy as well. Hmm. Uh, um, it it blew my mind, and and I could go on and on and on because, of course, I was in love with what I had written, which I always am. <laughs> but the the big idea was uh, that I, I discovered is that these loan sharks, the micro entrepreneurs, use them for cash flow. So if they have a, a shipment coming in tomorrow and they don't have enough cash to cover it, um, they'll get you know, 500, 1,000, 1,500 pesos to cover their, their cash flow to buy supplies or whatever they need to. And then they quickly pay it back. And whenever I did, whenever I did the extrapolation of the, of the interest rates, the interest rates aren't really that crazy. Once you look at it uh, from an annual, um, there it's it's actually very it's a very economical uh, way to to approach micro lending. Um, they only went to the micro the the formal micro enterprise lenders, the formal micro formal microfinancers, whenever they wanted to add on to their building or they wanted to purchase a, a big piece of, of equipment. In other words, whenever they needed to make it like a capital investment on a micro scale, but that's whenever they would go to a formal lender. But for just everyday cash flow purposes, they'd have a, a, one of these loan sharks and their rates were not, the, the word with the loan sharks is always usurious or us, usury, usurious. And that was that was not the case. So my the point of, of my thesis or the, the suggestion of my thesis was that the formal uh, micro enterprise and microfinance um, institutions, especially governmental, they need instead of pushing prestamistas to the fringe and believing that they're um, they're these bad people, they need to recognize the crucial role that they play in the informal uh, finance sector. And they actually needed to work with prestamistas, give them working capital so that they can turn around and have more working capital. That was one of the, I'm sorry, I could go on and on and on. <laughs> the point being, well, the villains are actually the heroes. Right, and isn't And that much better than payday lenders here. Right. Well, get me started. and to bring, to bring us back on track, when you were writing this thesis and doing this, this research, which I can see how exciting that would have been, at what point in your mind did you ever think to yourself, I want to write books? Or uh, that did was you? High school. I was in high school. Yeah, that was in high school. Um, I started writing short stories. I had a couple of English teachers who encouraged me. And then for... Um, then for, for, for my thesis, it uh, I couldn't just do a dry academic thesis. Mm. So I actually wrote with my uh, with my thesis advisor's blessing. I wrote my thesis in prose. And so I wrote it as if someone were sitting there talking to me. Mm. I recounted conversations that I had had with different uh, people. I described what was going on. I made jokes. Cool. Um, it is not a... As far as master's theses go, it is not one of the more boring ones. Hmm. So at what point did these skills and, you know, uh, your passion for, for business books, for writing, turn into ghostwriting? 
Mm. So after I graduated, um, I graduated 2007, which was just at the beginning of the great financial crisis. And so all the all the jobs uh, in the public and the private sector that I had prepared myself for, that I should have been a shoe-in for, with my academic um, with my academic record, with everything that I had put together, um, all of a sudden none of those jobs were available. Nobody was hiring. Um, everybody was getting fired or laid off. And the few jobs that were available pitted me against people who had my same academic experience plus 20 years of experience. Mm. Uh, so I took a job with one guy who turned out to be a con man, took a job with, uh, came back to Louisiana, took a job with someone else who also kind of turned out to be a shady con man. Um, I see a pattern here. Yeah, I don't know. What that's <laughs> I don't know about Louisiana. Lone sharks, con men. What's going on here, Derek? <laughs> but uh, once they they learned that I liked to write and that I was I was a good writer, um, they had me be their default uh, copywriter. Hmm. So all their ads, all their marketing stuff, in addition to all the other things I was doing, I also became the the de facto. Uh, copywriter and marketing guy for the the company. Uh, once I finally left that guy's employee, thank God, with my wife's encouragement, I'll add. <laughs> um, a friend and I started a uh, we started a small business, bootstrapped. Uh, it was a small uh, what do they call it? A managed service provider, an MSP. So managing small businesses, uh, computers. Um, and computer networks, so software and, and hardware and that kind of thing. While we were bootstrapping our little our little startup, uh, I moonlighted as a copywriter. I said, well, I could do that in this company, so why don't I just keep on doing that? Um, so I went on to sites like freelancer.com. Back then there was Odesk and guru.com and I think a couple of others. And... I got to the point where I was making more money as a freelance copywriter than I was um, starting this uh, business that I was not equipped for at all. Um, So my partner, uh, whenever I brought up the subject of me leaving to go off on my own, uh, he readily accepted it because I was... uh, I was, I'm not a computer guy and I don't, I don't even know why I tried to do a computer. <laughs> he has gone on and done well, very nice. well. Got yeah. a number of employees. He's got um, some of the biggest uh, health clinics, healthcare clinics in, um, in our, in our region as his, as his customers. He's done great. Very proud of that. And uh, I went on my, my little merry little freelancer way. Uh, came across uh, an ad that asked if um, if somebody out there could help them with a, a business book. Mm. And I threw my hat in the ring, and out of 22 of the other people who did, I got the gig. We both found out that ghostwriting a book is a lot different than ghostwriting an article or a white paper or copywriting. Mm-hmm. But she was patient, and I was cheap, and <laughs> I was determined to do uh, an incredible job. And once we finally got finished, and I sat back, I realized how much more I loved the long-form writing, where I could really sink my teeth into the subject, where I collaborated closely with uh, with the author where we could brainstorm and, and throw ideas and I could put something out and she could challenge it. Um, and, and I'd make it even better. I just, I realized that that's, that was a real fit for, for my skills, but more importantly, I think for my personality, for the way that I was wired. Hmm. Nice. Uh, yeah. And I'm sorry that, uh, you know, I'm giving you the, the 60 minute version. Of no, this is a, this is a 60 minute podcast. <laughs> Well, you've had clients from Disney and Pixar, uh, I believe Coca-Cola, um, Tour de France, I think. Is that right? 
So my, yeah, my clients. Le uh, Tour de France? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, he was, and don't laugh when I say this, he was one of uh, Lance Armstrong's doctors. Hmm. Uh-oh. So, um, <laughs> You're yeah, laughing, Chad. He, he didn't know. He didn't know. Lance did his stuff off to the side with another informal supplier, we'll say. Uh, so he was not in, involved in the uh, the scandal. Um, Allegedly, he was quite, he was quite <laughs> disappointed because he had a, a he held Lance Armstrong in quite Thanks, quite high regard. Hmm. But yeah, um, my clients work with the best of of the best. They are incredibly impressive people. Uh, I am still kind of amazed every day at mm. the caliber of people who find my website, reach out to me, say, Derek, you look like you've done some good work. I'd love to work with you. And they end up being these amazing, incredible people. The the Berlin consultant I was telling you uh, about with her husband, she um, was uh, one of the one of the consultants that worked in the the merger. You remember whenever Chrysler and Mercedes-Benz merged for a few years? It was Daimler Chrysler. Yeah. Uh, She was one of the consultants that worked on that merger. She worked on another merger between the number one retail bank in Germany and I think the number one, was it private investments? It was was another number one bank in, in a different category. Worked on their merger. Yeah, these people are just they're they're amazing. It's pretty they're awesome. Just yeah. impressive. Now, when when people go to your website, are you given permission to list the books you've worked on so that you get the credit as the the ghostwriter? Or do you sign an NDA on most of most of these and can't really talk about them? Uh, it's a mix. So that's one of the things that we always uh, discuss and negotiate at the outset of, of the project. Um, for me, Jennifer, it's not really about the it's not really about having credit for the the book. I mean, I'm, I hear your your question. I'm answering a different question, which is get a pivot on me, huh? Go ahead, <laughs> we'll take it. I do, yeah. Why why don't uh, Maybe not credit, but like, you know, a portfolio of things you're proud of. Yeah. So for some of my, some of my authors, um, we negotiate and actually my name's on the cover. So for instance, Matt Pollard with Derek Lewis Hmm. for, you see that a lot. Yeah. For, um, for other clients, uh, I am acknowledged in the, in the book in the acknowledgements or something as, um, as the ghostwriter. Uh, or as a, or as an editor or something else uh, like that, or um, in the in the very least, in most cases, uh, they are fine. Depending on me doing a good job, which I've always done, uh, with me putting the at least the cover on on my website, so that other people can know this is you know, this is my, my client roster. This is yeah yeah I've done. So uh, so there's a quite a few that uh, I've been able to put on there. And then there have been a few that I can, I can give in private conversation. So if I have a one-on-one with a client, I can tell them um, you can also look at this and this and this book. And then I have a couple of clients that I, I don't even say their name to my wife. <laughs> cool. That's the mysterious part. <laughs> talk, talk to us about the the three-step process. I think actually it's criteria. So you list it on your website. and you know, Tell our listeners about this, the three criteria for working with a ghostwriter. Yeah, I say that there's, there's three fits. There's three different fronts or places that where the ghostwriter and the author have to be a, a fit. So first, there's the subject matter. So Jennifer, if someone approached me and they wanted me to ghost write a book on vampire erotica, that is not my wheelhouse. <laughs> not a good fit there? Not a good fit. Come on, fit. you live in Louisiana. Yeah, yeah. I could just uh, <laughs> go down to New Orleans and, and you know, get a little voodoo and... <clears throat> Throw out a, a manuscript in just a couple of days, right? <laughs> right. 
Okay, so, so that makes sense. So you know, yeah, something that's a, a fit, good fit um, for the for the subject. And I'm always surprised at how easily people overlook that. For some reason, they think if you're a writer, you can write anything. Anything. Yeah. 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 Well, and the as my prices have gone up, uh, my fee has gone up, um, and I'm working with more and more sophisticated. Um, clients, I guess I'll call them. They understand the need to have uh, to have a subject matter expert come into the project to present and deliver and translate their subject matter expertise. But um, especially whenever my my rates were were quite a bit lower, I would have people uh, memoirs, spirituality books. Uh, weight loss. I don't. Uh, it's it's that's just not what I do. Right, right. Uh, so that's fit number one. Fit number two is is the ghostwriter within their within their budget. And so with any purchase, it is it's a question of it's a question of, of value. So for me, Jennifer, there's no way. So a, a, a professional ghostwriter, at minimum, at minimum in the industry, a ghostwriter should charge $25,000 to write <clears throat> a nonfiction book of 60 to 80,000 words. That's mm-hmm. just, that's, that's bottom floor. That seems inexpensive Hold to on, me. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, knowing how much work goes into writing a book, that just seems like, wow, a bargain. Yeah, um, and my current fee is is quite a bit north of of there, but just just to put numbers out there. So, if the ghostwriter is twenty five thousand dollars, and the author only has a budget of ten thousand dollars, then you're not even in in the same ball field. You, you just you you can't make that make that work. Um. If, on the other hand, for my authors uh, in in particular, um, the the book is almost always a way to increase business. They're typically yeah. like glorified business yeah. cards, right? Like a business just, tool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for them, like there's a uh, there's a, um, a an author duo I'm working with right now. They'll invest the money that it's taken to um, to hire me, plus everything else. If they can just get one client, just one new client, it mm. pays for like their entire business for a year or wow. two. Wow! So totally, uh, yeah, yeah. Return on investment, right? Yeah. <laughs> so ghostwriter has to be a fit for for your budget, and everybody has a different budget. Um, it's not saying one's better or worse than, than another. It's just the reality of, of business mm-hmm. value. Uh, but as, assuming the first two, um, you're you're in the the ballpark. Um, you're a fit for the the subject matter, and you're a fit on the uh, the budget. The money's not um, an impediment or an issue. The third thing, and this is really, I think, the most important of the three is that the author and the ghostwriter are a fit personally. Right. Because you're going to be spending, my authors, I mean, we spend, I kick off a three-day retreat with them. So we spend all day, three days together, and then we spend hours and hours and hours on the phone for months on end and video um, going through my, my ghostwriting process. If you don't like each other to begin with, you're going to hate each other by the time you get finished. Right. And you're not going to like that book. Yeah. What do you think is the best way to determine if you're a good fit? (laughs) Is it the kind of scotch you drink? (laughs) Doesn't hurt. hurt. Well, the fact that it's scotch and not Kentucky bourbon. Well, there you go. Yeah. Automatic cross them off the list. <laughs> Not a good fit. <laughs> um, 
for me, actually, in the very first phone call, there are a couple of, of green flags or green lights, whatever, um, that I look for. If the, if the author respects my time, if they're punctual, mm. um, I know that they, that means they respect their time and my time. If uh, the author shows that communication with me is a priority, then I know that their book is a priority to them which means this is something they really want to happen. They're committed to, to doing something great together. Mm. Um, if we get on the phone and they, <clears throat> they recognize that I'm the subject matter expertise, sorry, subject matter expert, and they, um, they allow me to take the lead in, in the phone call instead of coming in and trying to direct how things are going to go and, basically running the call the way they think that it should, it should go. Um, and if I can make them laugh, there, there, there are one or two jokes I try to tell in every one of my sales calls. And if I can at least get a little chuckle out of them, then I know that there's, um, I know that it's a good sign that, um, it's a litmus joke. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, we're going to have to hear those, right? <laughs> Is this like a trade secret? You can't, you can't share your jokes or. No, I can't. I can't. In fact, one of them I've already shared with you. The, um, if they want me to write vampire erotica, I can't, I can't do that. Ah. And if they'll I chuckle. chuckle. Like, yeah. You <laughs> so we're, there's an initial fit there. And then the other one is, so my five-step process to ghostwriting that I've developed over doing this for more than a decade is called, uh, I call it my Franken-Draft process. And so then I'll go through, there's five steps, uh, discovery, sketch, Franken-Draft, rebuild, and walkthrough. And then in uh, in, in step three, I talk about how we do chapter by chapter um, until we get to the very end. It's not a proper manuscript draft because we've copied and, and pasted and we've had new ideas and we've changed things and we've experimented. And uh, so I say it's, it's not a proper draft. That's why I call it a Franken draft. It's a Frankenstein of a manuscript draft. And so whenever they finally get the joke, Frankenstein manuscript draft, Franken draft, um, always the people who have, de- who decide to work with me, um, they always have a chuckle, if not a good kind of hearty laugh. I can't even imagine someone not getting that. Well, that's because it seems you come so from obvious. Well, yeah, maybe. but you come from publishing. All right, maybe you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute here. Well, that's cool. That's that's. Um, I'm not surprised. You have always been very methodical in in your steps and your process. So it makes sense that you know it begins there. Um, and having a good fit is so important. Working with any client, you know, in our business with Chad and I, um, when you when you don't have a that just that good energy, having a good time matters, right? That spark. Yeah, that's cool. That's I mean, you're cool. going to spend the majority of your life doing this thing we call a job. You might, might as, as well, well enjoy, enjoy it. it. Uh-oh. We're starting to sound like Uh-oh. each other. Oh, there were. We're <laughs> talk at the same time. Chad, Chad does exist. In stereo, we're available. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know your craziest client story. Huh. Can you can you do that? Can you get away with that? Yeah, I'm trying to think of, of which one to pick. Oh, I was going to say either you don't have any or of You've course you do. too many. I'm in the publishing it's industry. It's the publishing industry. Of course he has too many. <laughs> okay, so all of, all of my authors are amazing people and, and I love them. So crazy. The only like, whenever you say crazy, like negative connotation crazy, that happened... Um, maybe well, I don't necessarily mean negative. Years, I mean a wild most, ride. Yeah, one of the one of the most out there experiences had to be where um, he was a, a, an executive from GE, and he was contemplating his next career move. He had moved on from from GE, and he 
he's an American. Uh, he was an, he is an American. I'm an American too, but he wanted to start the, the, the book writing process. Um, like one or two valleys away from where his 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 ancestors, like literally his, he can trace his ethnicity through DNA um, DNA uh, back to one of these valleys in Switzerland, and so he paid um, for the both of us to fly from the United States to Zurich. And then from Zurich, uh, the train rides all the way up. Um, wow. Talk about all the way time. <laughs> yeah. The, um, into the mountains that border Switzerland and Italy. There's a particular mountain called the, the Eiger. Oh, yeah. And I know it well. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, um, it's really well known in, in mountain climbing uh, circles. There's a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a gorgeous uh, little literal chalet uh, in the, in the valley there that has been there for, I don't know, 200, 300 years. And that's where we did his author retreat. He paid for again, everything. Um, We even took the, the train. You can go through the mountain, um, into uh, the base of another mountain and then there's an observation deck they call it the they call it the top of Europe because it's the highest point um, it's the highest elevation point you can get to by train in in Europe and the train station is is literally carved out of out of a mountain Mm -hmm. You, you step off inside the mountain and then you go out and they've got They'd carved uh, the exit in order to get to this observation area. So your client was James Bond, is what you're telling us, Jennifer? I kid you not. <laughs> that if I if I sent you a picture of of the observation building, it looks like a James Bond super villain layer. Oh yeah, yeah, that's perfect, awesome. Perfect layer. Very cool. And. Uh, we worked together for five months and then he said, you know, I don't think I want to write this book anymore. Mm. And so we shook hands and parted ways. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. So he took me on a world-class adventure and footed the entire bill and he just didn't write the book. Yeah, never, never finished it. That feels like a fish that got away. Although you could look at it that you got to be on a yacht while you were fishing. So there is that. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you would fish off a yacht, but yeah. well, that's. I, I do. I I do wonder if there's if there's something that I could have done differently hmm. to have kept his interest in engaged. Sure. But I think, and maybe this is just me being kind to myself, but I think that it was doomed from the start mm. because he wasn't, he wasn't even for sure what he wanted his next career move to be. And so I think that he thought writing a book would help him discover that. And instead of looking at the book as a, as a platform, as a stepping stone, a tool to be used. Um, he looked at it as a solution to, to his current dilemma. And when it didn't deliver the answer that he was hoping for, I think that he lost interest and decided to go try to find that answer through some other means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just seek out a guru or something. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I gave him Yoda's address. <laughs> you know, and I wonder, you know, that must be one of the questions you ask your your authors when you first start working with them is, you know, what do you what do you want out of this book? What are the what are your goals? Yeah, since that um since that experience, I've gotten a lot more blunt about mm. challenging my authors and what they they really want and i not as a way of of 
because I was burned and I don't ever want that to happen again, but because I, I realized that I did him a disservice by not forcing him to dig deeper to find out the why behind what the what. Yeah. yeah, that's that's great. The why behind the what. I like it. Yeah. I want to tell our listeners about your podcast, the Business Book Podcast. And oh, you're, thank you. you're in your second season now, right? Uh, actually, we are. So we've we've. If we were still doing seasons, we would we would be well into season number three. Okay. Uh, but uh, I, I still I did seasons uh, because I needed a, to do like a batch, just because I needed to wrap my head around it. So I did one batch, and that went well. And then I did another batch, and then I realized that I had actually gotten a little confidence, um, you know, trying to follow in in Jennifer Thompson's confident footsteps. <laughs> uh, so now, yeah, they're just a, a series. I'm sorry, that was way too long of an answer to say, yes, the podcast is still going. That's awesome. Well, and how can people find your podcast? Uh, just go to DerekLewis.com. That's D-E-R-E-K-L-E-W-I-S. Mm-hmm. And click on uh, the Business Book Podcast. Awesome. Is there any advice you'd like to give our listeners who are you know, I'm going to assume the person who really needs you is the person who's an expert, has it in their head, but doesn't have the time to write it and needs someone to to help make that happen. Do you, do you have any advice for that person? Mm, well, I'm going to have to challenge you, Jennifer. Mm. But when you said they don't have the time to write it, if you don't have the time to write uh, a book, I can almost promise you that you don't have the time to collaborate with someone to, to write the book. Nice. That's a great answer because so many people come to me and tell me I need a ghostwriter because I don't have the time to write it myself. They're kidding themselves. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it is in order for your vision. Now you can just tell somebody to write whatever you like and I'll put my name on it again. That's not ghostwriting. That's fraud. Mm-hmm. But to create the vision um, to bring to life the vision that you have of, of your book, it's going to take it's going to take time. It's a mm-hmm. process, and it has to develop between you and the and the ghostwriter. Um, for someone who, and again, I go back to the midwife analogy. Whenever you feel like you've just got to write the book, you may not even know what you're really even writing about. You just know that you have to write this book. Mm. It's like having a baby. You don't know how it's going to go, but you know that you've got a baby and you know that the baby is is coming, whether you like it or not. Mm. For those people, um, the most important thing that you can do, and this is true, Jennifer, whether you're working with um, a collaborator, a partner, someone to help you tease those ideas out of your head, or if you're, um, if you go it alone, the most important thing you can do is to write. Don't get bogged down in, in the details. Don't get bogged down in coming up with the f- perfect first sentence. Don't think that you've got to get uh, the chapter uh, fixed and finished and finalized before you move on to chapter two. Just Just write. Even right. if it's stream of consciousness, just write. Mm-hmm. Excellent advice. Well, Derek, thank you so much for joining us. This has been awesome. I hope so, Jennifer. I, um, you know, I am a a little bit slow talking and uh, I have drug my stories out and gone way over the uh, time that I'm looking at my watch. So I appreciate you being generous and uh, thank you for being kind. But I had a wonderful time myself with you and the increasingly um, uh, uh, real Mr. Chad. The real Mr. Chad. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we appreciate you joining us. This has been fun. Thank you for the opportunity. I sincerely hope it helps uh, 
one of you listeners somehow. I hope so too. And speaking of, dear listener, you can learn more about Derek Lewis on his website at DerekLewis.com and also find links to follow Derek on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Plus, be sure to listen to Derek's podcast, The Business Book Podcast. This has been another episode of The Premise. Visit us online at thepremisepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at podpremise and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, be safe and take good care of yourself. Thanks for listening. Are you an author with a story to tell, but you're just not sure how to get that story out? Guess what? You don't have to do it alone. Marnie Friedman is an incredible writing coach. She offers personalized support and expertise to guide you from a kernel of an idea to completion. Visit MarniFriedman.com to learn more. That's M-A-R-N-I-F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N.com. This episode is brought to you by Monkey C Media, a small boutique design firm offering award-winning websites, book cover designs, book trailers, and photography services. And full disclosure, we love what we do. Chad and I founded Monkey C Media in 2004, and we're still going strong. Visit monkeycmedia.com. That's M-O-N-K-E-Y, the letter C, media.com to see how we can help you promote your book, build a powerful online presence. Mm-hmm. What else you got, Chad? Uh, let's see. We've got the San Diego Writer Festival. San Diego Writers Festival. There are many writers. (laughs) And they're a proud sponsor of our Premise podcast as well. 